You may remember today's subject from our episode on engraved books and the race to put out a publication of Thomas Gray's poetry. And one of the characters who comes out of that story is Horace Walpole because he was the mastermind really behind getting that particular publication, Thomas Gray's publication, produced at all, persuading Gray to allow his poem to be produced. And it was because of Horace's personal relationship with Gray that this actually came to fruition um, because they were at school together. And while we were talking about Horace, I started to think, oh, well, actually, we should talk more about him because he ties in so many strands in the 18th century that we've already been looking at. Architecture, because he produced this astonishing Gothic pile at Strawberry Hill. Printing, because he was one of the first people to, well, in the English tradition, to begin his own private press and print privately at Strawberry Hill Press. Literature, because of the, you know, his his patronage, if you like, of, of poetry and his collecting, his art collecting, because he was a huge art collector. Um, he was one of the first trustees of the British Museum. And then history, because anybody who reads any, any 18th century history at some point or other will be faced with an, a quote from Horace Walpole, because his letters survived, and he was quite deliberate, really, about getting them to survive, and in a sense, providing permission for them to be published. And also he wrote two memoirs of the reign of George, the the last years of George II and the reign of George III, which were published a number of years later in the 19th century, which (coughs) every person who wants to write about politics and society in 18th century Britain will use because... They can't help themselves, basically, (laughs) because they're so entertaining. He was a sort of literary figure without actually being consciously literary. I mean, you might even call him a proto-journalist or, you know, like in modern years, today he'd be on social media and he'd be, you know, an Instagram influencer. And, you know, he's that sort of person. He's had his fingers in hundreds of pies and was a very talented man in all ways. Of course, he was highly connected because he was the son of Robert Walpole, who we've met in other contexts, who was Britain's first prime minister. But he was not the eldest son. He was the third son. No expectations there. He was also the son of a marriage that was disintegrating, so he didn't actually have an awful lot to do with his father. He was really brought up by his mother. He was proud of his father, but they didn't really have a close relationship. But he was an aristocrat. And, you know, that gives you a degree of confidence. And and he was proud of his father's achievements. And so while not having huge a huge fortune, he did obviously have more money than most. And he had talent. <laughs> and that took him a long way. Welcome to Meet a Rare Book. I'm Mark Gosper. Guiding us along the way and sharing the remarkable stories they contain is librarian and rare book expert, Georgia Prince. They're still not popular books. They are artworks. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm going to show you here, first of all, is a not particularly glamorous little book, but it is interesting because it's another book of poetry by Thomas Gray, 
printed in, 19, in 1757, so the one that we looked at last time was 1753. This is 1757, and it's printed at Strawberry Hill Press, so, and it's the first book from Strawberry Hill Press. So one, one of Walpole's projects, <laughs> I suppose I should call it, was to develop a printing press. So he bought this house, which became Strawberry Hill, when he originally leased the house it was 1747. He fairly soon bought it and started to do it up. And we'll have a look at how he did it up a bit later. But in the course of that, he also decided he would like to print some of works by people. And he it wasn't him getting his hands dirty, but let's be honest, he did employ a printer. <laughs> but he financed it and he chose what works they were going to publish and he managed to get Gray to cough up another couple of poems for this book <laughs> because Gray was very cautious about coming into print. He was very anxious about, about, about being known, really. Or, but also he was sort of diffident, I suppose is the word, about his poetry, whereas Horace had no, no such um, doubts. So here we are. This is Odes by Mr Gray. So it's quite a small little publication and it has one of these nice little title pages, which he's quite good at which is Odes by Mr Gray. And this is, this is Strawberry Hill as it was in 1757, which is 10 years after he bought it. There's a little little vignette of, of, of the house. So this, this house was on the banks of the River Thames at Twickenham. <clears throat> it was not far from where Pope had bought a little villa and done it up. And it was sort of in an area where a number of wealthy people had bought property to escape the city but not be too far away. It was sort of like a rural, <coughs> sort of semi-rural area, but very, but because it was on the Thames, you know, you'd just get in a boat and go down the river. It didn't take you very long to get there. But they were all lined up, all these villas along, along the Thames. And Strawberry Hill became an astonishing Gothic confection, and that's one of the reasons it's so interesting. But at this stage, it's still sort of coming into its own. He kept building it for 80 years or something. It's still there and it went out of the family fairly quickly because he didn't have any direct heirs. He, he went to his niece and it became part of a university, an educational establishment like a lot of those things. But in the 2000s it has been restored and you can visit it. Most of the contents have disappeared. Well, in fact, all the contents disappeared quite early. But the house has been restored so you can go and visit it. Um, so the, the so it's a very plain little book. It's not terribly exciting, but the, it, it's the beginning of a tradition of of these private press publications, which have gone on right into the twenty twenty first century. There is a little interesting comment about it in this book that I was reading about Horace Walpole by a man called Timothy Mole or Mal. I'm not sure how you pronounce his surname. Where he's a bit dismissive of it, to put it mildly. But anyway, I'll read it out. Horace still found time to launch an eccentric venture of doubtful value. Just a bit mean. <laughs> His own private Strawberry Hill printing press lodged initially in an ex-farm building immediately behind the house. The press has given much pleasure to bibliophiles by its often very limited editions, but in fact this one had a thousand copies. So we do know that um, because they kept a list of you know what they produced. And he says it's principally a self-indulgence. But there is... There is something interesting about the, the, the productions that he chooses to print. And he is 
really acting as a patron for a poet, poet here who would not have gone into print commercially if he hadn't been sort of bullied into it. And it is sort of symptomatic of a number of reasons why people have continued to have these private press projects, if you like, printing things that they think are worth printing and often printing them in a way that they think they deserve, which the commercial world won't support. So they're really subsidising. Somebody like Horace is spending a lot of money on this. He's subsidising sort of literary productions. And it's often got an artistic element to it. And Horace himself was a you know, man who enjoyed art and was one of the people. That's another thing he did. He wrote the first real, first real history of English printing, uh, painting, sorry. So... They did perform a function, these private presses. They're not just about self-indulgence. They, they, they do, and they can be, um, and they have been subsequently, highly influential as artistic productions and produced literary works. I mean, the Hogarth Press, where Leonard Wolfe printed, that's another example, if you like, of the same sort of thing. They're printing things they want to print, and they won't get printed in any other way. And OK, his... Probably he's probably next famous. It's, it's always hard to tell what he's famous for if he's famous at all anymore. But he was he wrote a gothic novel called The Castle of Otranto, and you may have heard of that one. But he didn't print that at Strawberry Hill Press, probably because it was too big. You know, like it, that was printed commercially in 1764. But it's a it's a lot longer than these poet, poetry books, and they're quite hard to print. You know, like a huge. Um, novel, well, actually, it wasn't a huge novel, but a novel is quite hard to print. Um, so this is this. So this is the first production from the Strawberry Hill Press. Came into the library in 1918, donated by somebody called. Oh, it was a nice little donation slip at the beginning by Miss Westwood in 1918. Don't know anything about her. I have to look her up. This is 1757, and Horace has a whole lifetime ahead of him of all the activities being involved in. One of the things that, of course, made him an, a person who knew all these people and wrote all these letters and had all these connections was his aristocratic family networks because he was from this famous family, the Walpole family. But Horace was also a gay man at a time when you weren't allowed to at least openly acknowledge such things. And so he was also a bit of an outsider. He didn't marry he did form relationships with people, but naturally enough, they were kept very quiet. Um, there was a moment where he was almost outed and he got very upset about it. But a lot of these things we only know because his letters survived. And the interesting thing about him allowing his letters to survive was that he did actually ask people to keep them. So he did sort of have an eye on the future all, all the way along. And they are incredibly interesting, fascinating. He's a great, absolutely great letter writer. And in his old age, he met a family who lived nearby called the Berry family. There was two young women and their father. And Mary Berry, he got on very well with. His family were anxious <laughs> because they thought she's after his money um, because late in life he did become the Earl of Orford. He became the fourth Earl of Orford because his brother died and his nephew died and he was far, he was in line for the title. Um, so some of the fan, his niece, this woman who was his heir, sort of got anxious and ho hovered around the berries. But anyway, they, he left them 
<laughs> it's always interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Family stories. He left the berries, a big chest full of his letters and full of his works, and he left them those to publish. And one year after his death, so he died in 1797, one year after his death, they produced this, which is the collected works of, of Horace Walpole in five volumes. So those are actually the next, <laughs> the supplement that came out later because he left two boxes. <laughs> one box, the berries were allowed, which they could open. The other box had a date on it that said, I think it said something, it wasn't quite a date, but it was something like not to be opened until a certain person has reached their majority or something. So basically this was not till 1810. So this was another, you know, sort of 15 years or well, a little bit like 15 years after his death. That had a whole lot of other stuff and that had the memoirs of the last years of George II. And he was hoping there, of course, that some of the scandals that he was about to reveal wouldn't necessarily affect directly affect family members, you know. So he was trying to do that restrict. We, we know about it as manuscript librarians and, <laughs> and this, in, in this part of the building where we are asked to keep material and not make it available for so many years or so many years after somebody's death or not till some, after somebody's death and so on. It's the same sort of idea. So there was a supplement that came out which we have three volumes of, not the last volume. However, this is I've got out some of these because they're all fascinating, these volumes. And in some instances, of course, they are later reprints of things that were published during his life, but the letters are not I mean, this, this is the first time they appear. So I was going to open up, I think this is volume one, so... Sorry, there's so many volumes to juggle. I'm trying to make sure I'm sort of in correct order. <laughs> so that's volume one. It's a nice calf binding, fairly, it's contemporary. It's, it's nicely restrained, unlike Horace. Actually, he was quite restrained in some areas. They always say he, he never went in for the sort of like dandy clothes that he could have done um, in the period. He was quite... He was quite carefully dressed, neatly dressed, you know. He didn't do go in for the embroidered waistcoats and all the rest of it. So it's the works of Horatio, which is what his proper name was, of course. <laughs> or Horry, as he referred to himself as later. <laughs> and, this, and these five volumes are all edited by Mary Berry. So, you know, for all the suspicion that other people that people may have had about them being and I suppose they did make money out of this but they wouldn't have made thousands but it's a big work to to edit this and for to come out one year after his death and it's letters it's not you know it's not all so this is the preface by the editor she doesn't name herself but it is Mary Berry this edition now offered to the public of the works of the late Earl of Orford includes not only the manuscripts bequeathed by his lordship for publication, which was to them, but much new matter communicated by himself during his lifetime to the editor. So that's Mary. It's been still further enriched by contributions of his executors and others of his friends who, admiring his epistolary talents, had preserved every line of his writing. So they gave back the letters that he had sent them and who thought that by enlarging the collection of his letters they were adding to a valuable and entertaining pre they were adding to a valuable and entertaining present to the public 
Lord Orford, so early as the year 1768, had formed the intention of printing and soon after actually began a quarto edition of his works, but they, he never completed it, basically. The completion of this work he entrusts to the editor, um, to whom he also bequeathed all the notes, editions and alterations which he himself collected and arranged. And then there's a lot of things in this first volume which are sort of interesting. There's a, there's a play, there's, you know, there's, there's poetry, a catalogue of the royal and noble authors of England with lists of their works, so the sort of bibliographical things. And th- th- this is all just the first volume. The second volume, which I'm going to get out, which is the one I, I think is interesting to look at in more detail. So Castle of Otranto is in here, which is the gothic novel. And again, you know, he is like a pioneer in this. He's not the first person to write a gothic novel, but some of the earlier things that he's influenced by were French novels. So he is early for an English. There are, Maybe there's one other one or something that somebody had written, but he's, this is really one of the only ones that people remember from this period. It's never been out of print. It's been constantly, re- despite its ludicrous plot line and, you know, all sorts of other elements of it that don't make any sense whatsoever, like gothic novels never do. So there's even a sort of, you know, an imagined castle of Otranto here, <laughs> which is an engraving up here. So that it's got little, you know, little title pages and so on. But then when we get into here... This was his father's house. We call it a house, palace, which still exists in Norfolk. This is what Robert Walpole spent his ill-gotten gains as prime minister on. This is Houghton Hall. And he did, Horace did actually inherit it right at the end of his life. But he was very upset that his elder brother had not really looked after it properly and had actually sold off a lot of the contents before Horace ever had anything to do with it. In fact, apparently a lot of it's in the Hermitage. It all went to Catherine the Great. She bought them, which is an interesting story. I didn't know that one. But then we get on to where Horace has a free reign of his own, and he goes Gothic. So he wrote a description of the villa. He, he wrote this, you know, during his lifetime. This isn't the first time it's printed. But there's all these fantastic images So he spent really the second part of his life rebuilding it, you know, in various ways. And he built some, the early, the early plans were compiled, I suppose, with the, he didn't have a professional architect. He had friends who thought they knew best. Um, And one of them was Richard Bentley, you know, the man that we met who was the engraver of the odes, Thomas Gray. So Bentley also designed parts of Strawberry Hill um, until he fell out with Horace over something or other, which didn't, it's not inconceivable because I think they were both pretty opinionated. Here's the staircase at Strawberry Hill, you know, with suits of armour. Apparently he loved stained glass and, and one of the first inspiring sort of attributes, gothic attributes that he sort of got attached to was stained glass and then he started to want somewhere to put the stained glass, you know, so you could build a house for that. (laughs) (laughs) The library is fantastic. (laughs) You know, like it's one of these sort of a... But this is all plaster, you know, this is not... We're not talking about stone vaulting here. (laughs) It's not that sort of stonework that the... the, um, I mean, a lot of it's fake, you know, in terms of its production. It's not made with original materials like the Victorians went in for. The cabinet, 
which was, you know, that private little room where you had all your favourite things and no one else was allowed to go in unless you, were, unless you were invited. So that's got Horace's miniature collection because he collected miniatures, among other things, you know, heaps of stuff, which, of course, it isn't in, the, in there now because they don't, you know, it's all they've all been dispersed. And the chapel, which is as you'd imagine. But this is sort of quite... <laughs> You look at that chapel. I mean, this is sort of like Romantic Ruins Chapel. Mm-hmm. And and w- w- what you're looking at here, you know, is that switch from Palladianism with Inigo Jones and the classical and everything looking beautiful and Georgian and what we think, sort of sliding into Romanticism now. You know, the Gothic novels are like the beginning of, because they were they uh, the beginning of the Romantics, um, and also this type of Gothic architecture is harking back to what is construed as a, a truly English medieval past, which of course it's it's not, but it's viewed within that romantic light um, as part of your heritage. And then here we've got these double page spreads of the castle and there's plans and, you know, so these people who are who have been restoring Strawberry Hill have quite a lot of useful information that they can that they can glean from from this particular publication. So this is only volume two, and then I really wanted to just point out some of the letters because they're so utterly entertaining. I think, oh yeah, letters to Richard Bentley. So Richard Bentley, we know because we we came across him um, as the engraver, and these are. Letters to Bentley, and in this particular one, so that you know they're all all these letters have all been produced. You know, there's some there's some lovely little engravings of all the the correspondence, and that of course is that picture I showed you before, which is like this is an engraving from the from the portrait that's in the National Portrait Gallery. So that's these are letters from Horace Walpole to Richard Bentley. They're all dated and they're all beautifully produced with notes and everything. Oh, yes. I little thought when, so this is him sort of charging in. I little thought when I parted with you, my dear sir, that your absence would indemnify me so well for itself. I still less expected that I should find you improving daily, but your letters grow more and more entertaining. Your drawings more and more picturesque. You write with more wit and paint with more melancholy than ever anybody did. Your woody mountains hang down, somewhat so poetical, as Mr. Ash said, that your own poet Grey will scarce keep tune with you. So, you know, this is him. Or, so this is 1753, which is when he's producing that, you know, book of engravings with, with Grey. All this refers to your cascade scene in your letter. For the library, which we've just seen in Strawberry Hill, it cannot have the strawberry imprimatur, the double... So he, Bentley's trying to be design a library for him. The double arches and double pinnacles are most ungraceful. So here we go, Taurus at his sharpest. The, um, the doors below the bookcases in Mr. Chute's design had a con- conventual look, which yours totally wants. For this time, we shall put your genius in commission and, like some other regents, execute our own plan without minding our sovereign. In other words, he's going to do what he wants. For the chimney, I do not wonder you missed our instructions. We could not contrive to understand them ourselves. <laughs> and therefore, determining nothing but to have the old picture stuck in the thicket of pinnacles, we left it to you to find out the how. I believe it will be a little difficult, but as I, and so on. So this is the sort of thing he writes. And then on the next page, I did think this was quite funny. There are two more volumes come out of Sir Charles Grandison. So this is Samuel Richardson's novel, Sir Charles Grandison, which was a sort of early 
early, it's a sort of novel of sensibility, you know, this is what they called them, not quite romantic yet. I shall detain them till the last is published and not, I think, postpone much of your pleasure. For my part, I stopped at the fourth. He's talking about the volumes. Mm. I was so tired of sets of people getting together and saying, pray, miss, with whom are you in love? (laughs) (laughs) And of mighty good young men that convert your Mr. M in the twinkling of a sermon. You have not been much more diverted, I fear, with Hogarth's, Hogarth's book. So this is a book that he sent about that William Hogarth wrote. Um, Tis very silly. So you know, this is the sort of <laughs> this is the sort of thing his letters are full of. They're f- and they're full of places and and you know. So that was the fifth volume of Mary Berry's editorship, and then in I think this is um, in 1818. The next lot of letters came out, um, and these were these were um, printed by John Murray, um, who became such a famous. Well, he was such a famous publisher at this time, you know, Byron's publisher among other things. And so, this is letters from the on Horace Walpole to George Montague, and now first published from the originals in the possession of the editor. So, these are more letters that are basically coming out um, through the through the, the that's the memoirs, um, and in this one. Um, which was actually written in 1736. So Hor- Horace was born, so he's 19 when he wrote this, um, and he's written it to a friend called George Montague. And he said, um, You have made me a very unreasonable request, which I will answer with another as extraordinary. You desire I would burn your letters. I desire you would keep mine. <laughs> and he did, because <laughs> that's the first letter. Um, um, I know... I know but of one way of making myself useful, which is sending you a blank sheet and so on. He's trying to get him to write to him. Um, but it's, it's, it's that sense he had right from the beginning that he was a literary, you know, he was going to be a literary, he was going to be a somebody and he was going to write. And if this is how he was, you know, you, I'm writing well and you're going to keep what I've written. <laughs> I want it. The great Strawberry Hill was left to Walpole's niece. However, it fairly soon left the family altogether. The press stopped with Walpole. Uncover a truly unique collection. Visit Kura Heritage Collections online. Find them under Heritage on Auckland Library's website. This podcast was brought to you by Ngā Pātaka Kōrero, Auckland Libraries. Please join us again soon. <laughs>